Good morning. Uh, please rise in honor of uh, reading of God's Word. This morning we have two passages, and if you will be using the dark blue Bible in the pews, the first passage is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, on page 992. That is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The second passage is on page 1016. It is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Again, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for the word. And now we ask for the spirit to give us understanding, to give us help, to teach us and to shape us by your word by your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last few months, we've been in the book of 1 Timothy going through a series that we're calling The Rightly Ordered Church. And we've been arguing that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, this young pastor over this young church in Ephesus, with instructions on how to rightly order a church. So if you look in our chapter, chapter 3, uh, verses 14 to 15, Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So this letter is full of apostolic instructions for how a church ought to behave, how it should conduct itself, how it should organize and order itself. Chapter 2, as we saw, focused on how to order ourselves rightly when we gather together to worship. And now as we enter into chapter 3, it's about rightly ordering the leadership of a church. 
The premise I'm going with today is that if we have eyes to see the church as God sees the church, then we will share the same heart, a heart that is concerned to make sure that the right people are in the right place with the right authority to lead his church. If the church is the household of God, if it's his family, then you can see why he cares so much about who leads it. If the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth about his son, Jesus Christ, then you can see why he cares about leadership. Because like a pillar is able to lift up a statue for all to see, for everyone in the city, everyone in the world to see this statue, in the same way good leadership supports and enhances a church's ability to lift up Jesus for all to see. But bad leadership Bad leadership obscures and muddles that view of Jesus. And so my point is that our concern to have good biblical leadership in the church shouldn't center around just pragmatic concerns, but theological ones. It's not just about running a volunteer organization. It's not just about managing a bunch of ministries. No, we care about leadership because we care about mission. We care about the lost being able to see Jesus. We want Jesus to be clearly displayed through our church. There's this really good book on church ministry called The Trellis and the Vine that provides for us a very helpful metaphor of a vine trellis, uh, a lattice, you know, that, that wooden framework upon which a grapevine would grow. And so in this metaphor, the vine is the church of God. The vine is the body of Christ. It's the church. It's the people. And the trellis is the structure of the church, including its leadership structure. Now, if you think about this, the mission of the church is to be fruitful, is it not? We want to grow. We want to display beautiful fruit for the glory of the vine dresser. In this case, it's our Lord. It's for for his name. It's for his glory. But for the church to be fruitful and to bring God glory, we need strong leadership. We need good leadership. I mean, just just picture with me a vineyard that has a weak trellis, one that's 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 broken apart, that one that's divided, one that's weak. It can't support a growing vine without a good trellis, without support, without direction. Vines they grow wild and they tend to be unfruitful. But with a strong trellis in place, supporting the vine as it grows, giving it direction to go this way and not that way, then there is great potential for fruitfulness and ultimately for glory for the vine dresser. So I realize that you might be thinking this morning, wow, we're going to be talking about leadership? We're going to be talking about elders? What does that have to do with me? But just ask yourself this question. Do you want our church to be fruitful? Do you want our church to grow in a healthy direction? Do you care about Jesus being displayed in all of his beauty and glory and power through our life together as his church? If you answer yes to any of those questions, then you should care about church leadership. You should care about elders. You should know what an elder is, what an elder does, and what you should be looking for in one. Now, today we're 
not actually going to study our passage verse by verse, which is our normal practice. Pastor Joseph, our Chinese pastor, is going to be doing that for us next week. I'm looking forward to that, having him preach in our English service. He's going to be focusing on what to look for in elders in regards to their character and competency as he's looking uh, through verses 1 to 7 of, of 1 Timothy 3. What I want to do this morning is to take a step back and to get a bird's eye view of the New Testament's teaching about elders. I, I, I want to take a comprehensive look at what the Bible itself teaches about elders. Because if you're new to the church, if you didn't grow up in one, I wouldn't expect you to know what an elder is. Uh, and, you know, for many of you who did grow up in the church, depending on your church tradition, you may or may not be familiar with church elders, with what they're supposed to do. And so what I want to do this morning is to give you a brief biblical theology of eldership. And so you need to have your Bible open because we're going to be flipping through a few different passages, and I want you to follow along with us. And so let's... Let's begin by asking a few questions, and if you want to just turn to your uh, outline in your bulletin, you can, you can also see the questions we're going to be using. So we're going to begin with this question. Who are church elders? Who are the church elders? And there are at least three ways to answer that. I think there's only two printed in your bulletin. I'll give you the third one later. But three ways to answer that. The first is to say this. The church elders are the overseers and pastors of the church. The overseers and pastors. In other words, the church elders are those men in the church who have been appointed to a certain office of leadership that we call elder or overseer or pastor. We're using those terms synonymously as interchangeable terms. Now I know if you were just, if you were listening carefully, I know I just said men, and you might be wondering why I didn't include women, and that relates to the sermon that we gave uh, earlier on chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. And the basic premise there was that Paul's restriction on women in that passage had to do with this particular office of church elder, that he was teaching that godly qualified men are to take primary responsibility to teach and to exercise authority in the church as the church's elders. And I don't have time to rehash all of those arguments, so I'll just direct your attention to our website, and you can be able to listen to that message for yourself and to consider the arguments there. But regardless of where you stand on this issue of male leadership in the church, I hope we can still agree that elders, overseers, and pastors refer to the same office in the church and to the same people serving in that particular role. Now, let's look at some passages to try to, to, to support that claim. Now, if you look at, uh, with me just at, at, at 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, the passage that was read a moment ago, you don't actually find the term elder in it. Instead, you see the word overseer. Just look at verse 1 again. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so there is an office, there is a authorized role in the church called the office of overseer. But if you just turn over to chapter 5, just flip over to chapter 5 in verse uh, 17, you will notice uh, mention of elders. So there are two terms here, and your initial reaction might be to assume that they're referring to two different offices, two different roles in the church. 
And there are some church traditions who do separate the two. So instead of calling them overseers, no one really calls them that. In these traditions, they call them bishops. And so any denomination that recognizes a bishop, and that's basically an individual who holds ecclesial authority over more than one church. That structure is based on this assumption that overseers and elders are not the same, that they are two separate offices. Bishops, they oversee multiple churches within an area, while elders only lead within a particular local church. You're going to find this practice very common among Episcopalians, Anglicans, Methodists, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and of course the Roman Catholic Church, with the Pope being the supreme bishop. Now our church is not within that tradition. We don't recognize bishops as a distinct office. Instead, we see overseers and elders as interchangeable terms. And the reason is because not because we're, we're, we are committed to one particular tradition. It's just because of what we see in the Scriptures. We see the way Scripture uses these terms. So turn with me to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Titus 1, 5. If you're using that Blue Pew Bible, it's found on page 998. Now, in verse 5 in Titus chapter 1, there is mention of the word elders. And Paul tells Titus, the reason why I left you in Crete is so that you could go and appoint elders in every town, presuming that there were churches planted in each of those towns. And then in verse 6, he gives Titus a list of elder qualifications. But notice with me, now in verse 7, he starts talking about an overseer. It's a new term. But there's no reason to suggest that Paul has suddenly shifted subjects. He's still focused on qualifications. The flow of thought is seamless here, suggesting that the terms elder and overseer are interchangeable. He is using them synonymously. Now, another example is found in Acts chapter 20. You might want to keep your finger or something in Titus, because we're going to go back there in a moment, and flip over to Acts 20. Again, if you're using that pew Bible, it is on page 929. 929. This is Acts 20, and I want you to look at verse 17. Here, Paul is speaking to elders. He's speaking to the Ephesian elders, probably the same elders to whom he was writing in 1 Timothy. Now, Look at verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And he goes on to recount his ministry when he was among them. And then skip down to verse 28 with me. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So remember, he is talking to the Ephesian elders, and now he just said that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers with the responsibility of caring for the church. And on top of that, notice how he goes on in the next verse, verse 29, using imagery where the church is compared to a flock, and the elders, the overseers, are functioning as shepherds. They're functioning as pastors guarding sheep from fierce wolves who are seeking to attack. And that introduces for us a third term here, pastor. 
which is just the Latin for the word shepherd, a pastor. Now, okay, one more text to turn to. Now go back to, now go to 1 Timothy 5, which uh, was read to us earlier, and in the Pew Bible, that's on page 1016. So, 1 Peter 5, and I'm just going to want you to look at the first two verses. And again, here in this passage, 1 Peter 5, we see all three terms being used to describe one role in the church. And so notice how Peter starts off in verse 1 by calling himself a fellow elder, where he could have easily just uh, asserted his authority as an apostle, right? He could have just pulled rank on everyone, but no, instead he speaks to these elders as a fellow elder on the same level. And he goes on, and notice with me in verse 2, he goes on to exhort the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, in just those two verses, you have the word for elder, and you have the word for pastor and for overseer. They are all present, though pastor and overseer are found in their verb form. But all three terms are here And it's all directed to the same group of people. And so what this suggests for us is that elders pastor. They do the work of pastors. And elders oversee. They do the work of overseers. Now we're going to look at what those uh, words, what what that looks like uh, when we look in our next point about what they do. But the point I just want to make here is that no matter which of those three terms you are using, you are describing the same person doing the same job. Now, you might still be wondering, why would the biblical authors use three different terms to describe the same thing, the same office? Well, I think the best explanation is because each term emphasizes something different about that same person in that same role. The term elder really focuses on the man's character. It's derived from the tribal leadership structure of ancient Israel. Because remember, the early church was rooted in Judaism. And so they appropriated the term elder to characterize the spiritual maturity of their leaders. Now that term overseer emphasizes not the man's character per se, but the man's function, what he does. The early church was influenced not just by Jewish, but also Greek culture. And that's a Greek word and concept that communicates the idea of watching over or superintending a group of people. So it talks about what the elder does. The term pastor does the same thing. It also emphasizes function, particularly the feeding and the nurturing and the protecting responsibilities that this leader has over the flock of God. And so using all three terms is helpful because it kind of rounds out our understanding of elders, of who they are, and of what they do. So that, my friends, is the first way to answer who are the church elders. They are the overseers and pastors. But here's a second answer. They are the ones who have a noble and necessary role in the church. They have a noble necessary role. I get this out of 1 Timothy 3.1 and also out of Titus 1.5. And so uh, let's just go back to Titus 1.5 first. So again, that's on page 998. Titus 1, based on verse 5, it's clear that a church can be a real church if it doesn't have elders. So please hear me there. 
It can be a real church if it does not have elders, but until it does, it's not a complete church. It's not a mature church. And that's why Titus was left in Crete to, quote, put what remained into order. Literally there, he is to set right the things lacking. In other words, a church is lacking something if it doesn't have elders. It's kind of like how a family is still a family even if there's no father figure in the home. But we all know that something significant is missing in that picture. For its own health, for its own growth, for its own maturity, that family needs a father in the home. And so that's why churches need to appoint elders, not just because we think it's a good idea, not just because that's what other churches are doing and it seems to work for them. No, we appoint church elders because it's taught in the Bible and because it brings completeness and health and maturity to the church. Thankfully, here at HCC, we do recognize and appoint elders. Some of them are on staff, and they are financially compensated for the unique work that they do as elders. I'm referring to those that we normally call pastors. We also have elders who are laymen with full-time jobs outside of the church, but they're still responsible, along with the pastors, of doing the work of overseeing and pastoring the flock. Now, I realize we're not used to calling our staff pastors elders and calling our lay elders pastors. What I'm trying to demonstrate is that it would be biblically appropriate to do so if you felt, if you felt like it. But you know, regardless of the title, I'm thankful that we recognize the importance of having church elders. And I hope as we continue to develop a healthy theology and practice of eldership as a church, that the idea of being an elder would be considered by all to be a noble, honorable task. I mean, just think back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. To serve as a church elder, whether staff or non-staff, it's a hard task. It's a time-consuming task. It is a heart-wrenching, heart-breaking task. It is a tiresome task, but it is a noble task. To serve for the glory of our great God and for the good of his blood-bought bride his beloved church, to serve his people is a great honor. It's a great privilege. It is truly a noble task. And so to the men of the church, brothers, let me ask you a question perhaps you've never considered. What reason do you have for not aspiring to the office of overseer? What reason do you have for not desiring so noble a task? Now, I realize that not every man is called to the task. Most men in the church won't serve in this role. But is it because you've been called and you aspire to another equally noble task? You see, there are some brothers who are wired and gifted in such a way that serving as a church elder would be a bad fit because they aspire to minister primarily outside of the church in secular environments like the workplace or perhaps in unreached lands. 
Their primary calling is not, to, is not to the ministries and to the members of the local church. It's to people outside of the church, and that is fine. They desire an equally noble task. But if that's not your calling, if you don't aspire to serve primarily outside the church, then why don't you aspire to this noble task? Why aren't you an elder? Now, you might have a reason. I just wonder if you know it. That's my challenge to you men to consider, is this task truly noble? And why don't I aspire to it? And I do hope and pray that more men will aspire to serve in this capacity in our church. Now let's look at our third way of answering this question, who are the church elders? And this is, I don't think it's, it's in your outline, so write this down. They are the local senior team of church elders. They are the local senior team of church leaders, sorry, church leaders. There's a lot wrapped up in that short sentence, so let's look at it. Uh, what this is implying is that the church is not led by an external leadership body from the outside and also not led by one single man from the inside. Focus on the word local here. What we don't see in the pages of the New Testament are any clear examples of outside of an outside leadership body having ecclesial authority over multiple churches in a district. That's why we have not adopted a Presbyterian model of governance. Presbyterian churches, they do have their own church elders, but they occasionally send those elders to a presbytery that has binding authority over various churches within a district. Some of you might be thinking of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 as an example of that, but actually there are good reasons for why that is not an example of a presbytery. I don't have time to go into those arguments, and so if you're interested, I just want to point you to Benjamin Merkel's book, Benjamin Merkel's book on 40 questions about elders and deacons. 40 questions about elders and deacons. It's a good resource. The point I just want to make is that what we see in Scripture are elders being appointed to give local oversight to local churches. It's local, it's a local team of leaders. Now the other key word to point out is that word team. We never see in the New Testament or in the early church an example of a church being led by one singular elder. They always served as a team. There was a plurality of elders in each church. When Paul, when he writes to the church of Philippi, in Philippians chapter 1, he addresses it to all the saints, notice, with the overseers and deacons. He writes to the overseers. So there are two clear offices in one church, and notice how they are both comprised of more than just one person, overseers and deacons. Now in Titus 1, as we saw earlier, Titus is to appoint elders, plural, in every single church. That was Paul's consistent pattern when he would plant churches. Uh, we see that pattern set in the book of Acts, in chapter 14, verse 23. We read there of Paul and Barnabas going from city to city, preaching the gospel, making disciples, and appointing elders, plural, in every church they planted. So there's no evidence of any church in the New Testament or in the early church that was led by a single soul elder. 
You won't find any pyramid structure in any church where there's one man who stands at the top. Rather, we see a consistent pattern of elders leading churches as a plurality, as a team. Now, that doesn't mean that it's unbiblical for a church to have a senior pastor or a lead pastor on its staff. There can be that first among equals, but the stresses on equals. There should be parity among that plurality of church elders. Parity among a plurality. So let's just conclude this, this question, who are the church elders? In summary, they are the men in a church who have been appointed to a particular office, particular role within that local church to perform a noble, necessary task of overseeing and pastoring its members. Okay, let's now ask the question of what do they do? What is the role of a church elder? Now, I know we already touched upon it when we looked at the terms overseer and pastor, but let me say three things in response to this particular question. First, they are to feed the flock. They are to feed God's sheep. That's one of the most basic responsibilities if you're a shepherd. You take a flock out to pasture and you feed them. And if you want to apply that metaphor to the church, it means that pastors feed you by teaching you God's word. Now, that word for pastor, there's actually only one place in the New Testament where the term pastor shows up as a noun describing a, a particular person, identifying a church leader. It's mostly used throughout the New Testament as a verb. The only one place is in Ephesians 4:11, and there it says that Christ gave to the church, along with other gifts, he gave the shepherds and teachers. He gave to the church the shepherds and teachers. Most commentators think that's referring just to one role here, the role of shepherd-teacher, the role of pastor-teacher. Teaching is, is clearly an outsized role for elders. It's tied so closely to what they do. We pastor through teaching, teaching God's Word. And that's why you find it as one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, being able to teach. If you notice, that's only asked of elders, of overseers. It's not asked of the deacons. It's also in the qualifications for elders that's found in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says there, let me read that to you. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And so an elder's job is not to be a theological innovator. He doesn't have to come up with anything new. He just has to hold firm to the good deposit that was entrusted to him. He just has to tell the old, old story. He just has to teach people sound doctrine. He just has to feed Jesus' sheep. This is usually accomplished through preaching, through teaching classes, establishing doctrinal positions for the church, through biblical counseling, through just personal exhortation. These are different ways in which we feed God's sheep. Now, the second thing elders are to do is a corollary to this task of teaching, and they are to protect the flock, to protect the flock. In Titus 1.9, Paul said that in addition to giving instruction in sound doctrine, elders are responsible to rebuke, to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. So that means when fierce wolves show up, when they show up trying to draw away disciples with their false teaching, 
good shepherds aren't going to sit down with the wolves and try to dialogue with them. Good shepherds are going to shoo away the wolves. They're going to use a sling. They're going to use a staff if necessary. A good shepherd is willing to confront wolves to protect sheep. And so any healthy church is going to have elders who are willing and able to expose and to correct unsound teaching, whether it's messages that are being sent by our popular culture or if it's something being taught by an individual or by a group within the church. We have to make sure the teaching of our church is sound, is biblical, is to protect you, is to care for you in that way. But you know, in protecting the sheep, sometimes we have to protect the sheep from themselves. When sheep are messing around with sin, wandering into dangerous territory, loving pastors are going to be the ones who go after them, who lovingly rebuke them, who call them back to the safety of the sheepfold. And so that means an elder needs to be bold and gentle in order to confront their own members with the need to repent of all known sin and to keep trusting in the gospel. We're protecting people from harm and danger on the outside and even from within. So you put these two responsibilities together, just think about it this way. On on one hand, elders are to build up the church, and on the other, they are to defend the church. Just picture with me the men in Nehemiah's day, the men who were tasked to build up the walls of Jerusalem in spite of all the opposition and all the threats of attack that they faced every single day. It says in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 17, that each man labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. As Charles Spurgeon put it, each man held a sword and a trowel. A sword and a trowel, one to build, one to build and, and one to defend. That's the job of church elders. We're building, we're defending. Now, the third way to answer our question of what elders, of what an elder does is this: elders are to lead the flock. This picture with that, again, that, that metaphor of of elders leading their sheep out to pasture, leading them from where it's comfortable, from where it's familiar, out to new and better pastures. And the path to get there, it can be frightening. There could be dark valleys. There could be rushing rivers. There could be danger at every corner. But elders, good elders, they keep their eyes on the chief shepherd and where he's calling them to go, and they faithfully lead the flock there by exercising good oversight. 1 Peter 5.2 says to elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And so there you see overseeing and shepherding, pastoring as not two separate roles, but the same. Granted, those Terms have slight nuances, but they're closely related. In the end, both terms are emphasizing the responsibility to give leadership to a group of people. Pastoring or shepherding is the figurative expression of leading a group of people. Overseeing is just a more literal expression. Both communicate the idea of leading, leading people. 
So this means when you are looking for elders to oversee a church, church, you're not just looking for guys to serve as board members. You're not just looking for those who have the most managerial experience or who have the know-how in balancing big budgets. You're not just looking for professionals. What you're looking for are shepherds, for pastors, for spiritual leaders. Now, most elders won't be seminary trained, but they should be trained in sound doctrine. Most won't be regular preachers, but they should know how to feed God's sheep using his word. Most won't serve full-time on the church staff, but they should be willing to give the necessary time it takes to oversee a flock. That's what you're looking for in elders. So we've considered who they are, what they do. Now let's just briefly consider how they are to serve in the church. And I ask you to turn with me back to 1 Peter chapter 5. Again, that's on page 1016 in the Blue Bible. There are three answers to the question of how do church elders serve. And first, they serve willingly and not under compulsion. I see that in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So God expects wholehearted devotion from any man who's going to serve as an elder. If he feels pressured to serve, if he's doing it under compulsion, it's not how God would have it. He could be, he could be the most spiritually mature man that you know, but if he doesn't aspire to this office, if he doesn't desire this noble task, then he's not qualified. That's, that's one of the first things. He has to aspire to it. He has to want it. And this principle would really, would really apply to any position of leadership within our church. We don't want deacons. We don't want small group leaders. We don't want disciples serving simply because there's no one else available, simply because others expect them to do so. If you are serving under compulsion, if you are not serving willingly, that's no good for you, and it's no good for the people that you're serving. God's will is for willing service. Peter goes on to say that elders ought to exercise oversight not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, they serve eagerly and not for money. Now you might be thinking, what money? Elders don't get paid, they're volunteers. Well, remember, your pastors on the payroll are elders. And so when it comes to elders that we do compensate, if they are overly concerned with their paychecks, then that means they're under qualified. Shepherding the flock of God is a noble task, but we defile it if we are motivated by a spirit of greed that seeks financial gain. Church elders should be motivated by a spirit of eagerness to serve. And lastly, Peter goes on to say in verse 3 that elders serve as examples and not as autocrats. They serve as examples. They are not to be, verse 3, domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, the fact that there is a temptation for elders to be domineering implies that they do hold a degree of authority over the flock. If your elders had no authority over you, then why would Peter have to even warn about this? And so the fact is that church elders have 
authority over church members, and with it they are to lead the church. But they're not to do so like the rulers and leaders of this world who pull rank and who lord their authority over others. Jesus told us in Mark chapter 10 that those who lead the church, those who would be great, must become servants. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so the point is, when it comes to the household of God, when it comes to those with the authority to lead They are to lead by example and not by force of will. We follow the example of our chief shepherd, our chief pastor, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus demonstrated for us that leadership within God's kingdom is anything but self-serving. It is cross-bearing. It is self-serving denying it is centered on the glory of God and the good of others. So if our chief pastor took the road to Calvary, the road of sacrificial servanthood, then he expects all of us to follow on the same path, and he expects the elders of the church to lead the way. We go on the path of Calvary. So church, I want to just conclude by asking you to please pray. Please pray for your church elders. As Pastor Fred was praying earlier, pray for their spiritual and emotional and physical well-being. Pray for their families, for the health of their families. Pray as well for our church as we begin a process of nominating and appointing new elders for next year. And let me end with just two applications drawn directly from the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to read two verses and let the Spirit of God Apply it to your heart. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its clarity and its power. May your word shape the way that we view your church, your leaders, and may we continue to embrace the way you have designed for churches to be ordered, because, Lord, we want Jesus to be known. We want Jesus to be seen, Jesus to be displayed in all of his glory through our church. So do that, Lord, for the sake of Christ. Do this. It's in his name we pray. Amen.